It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornsheen. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornsheen. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship, Fountain Valley, right here in Colorado Springs. And I am thrilled that you are tuning in today. We are continuing our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, uh, while I was out, uh, in fact, I just got back from Cleveland. I was speaking at a pregnancy center event there, uh, just a few miles out from a downtown area. Wonderful group of folks, powerful mission and ministry these pregnancy centers have. And uh, right now is the season where there are a number of gala events, uh, galas happening all across the country, raising money uh, for this worthy effort, not just of saving babies, but saving families. Uh, And ultimately, uh, that's what they're all about, uh, reaching out to families in great need, ministering moms, dads, families alike, and and babies are saved in the process. We praise God for that. And you probably have heard my story a number of times, and uh, I'll have to share it again as a testimony uh, unto the Lord and what He's done in, in my life as well. So uh, while I was out, and uh, we, we've done this study uh, before at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, some of our pastors were teaching on 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, in which they covered being open to correction and how to purge leavening. And, and those broadcasts are on our website at calvaryfountain.com. You can go and re-watch those. Certainly encourage you to do that. Share those broadcasts, uh, get the sermon notes, uh, have small groups, and really go through this study together. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I would try to cover just the first few verses because uh, like the other ones, this chapter is loaded with rich content. This one specifically is about lawsuits. Lawsuits amongst the brethren even. And so this is a powerful one. We don't think that we're a litigious uh, culture within the church, but in fact, we have become that. In fact, I would say that what is the greatest American pastime? Well, we would think that it would be baseball, right? For years, that's what we thought was that baseball was America's pastime. However, litigation seems to be moving into second place, maybe even vying for first place, because our criminal justice system in this country is a big business beyond belief. Our, our national motto seems to have changed from in God we trust to see you in court. Well, today, more than 80% of the world's lawyers live in the United States. There are 15 million civil cases filed annually in the United States. Americans spend more on civil litigation than any other industrialized country. Twice what is spent on new cars every year. The national cost of lawsuits is at $251 billion and counting. Germany is second with $28.5 billion. So $251 billion compared to the second most nation with only $28 billion. Another $1.6 billion is spent on settling outside of court. This equates to nearly $800 per person in the United States every single year. Children are suing their parents. Students are suing their teachers. Players are suing their coaches. Spouses suing their marriage partners. This isn't limited to non-Christians only. In fact, Christians, they're, they're suing each other. And Christian faculty members are now filing suits against the administrations of Christian schools. Churches are suing one another. Churches are suing their pastors and vice versa. Yet what we see today is nothing new. In fact, in ancient Greece, the church in Corinth was dealing with similar issues as well. And Paul is going to state clearly that Christians of all people ought to be able to settle their own disputes. 
The key in doing so is to understand our true identity in Christ. After all, we are the body of Christ. We're going to get to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in which we have more information on that to better understand that we are the body of Christ. Some of us fingers, others toes, so it'd be like our own body suing our body. It just doesn't make sense. So when we understand who we are in Christ, we will not have to war with other believers over material possessions or even legal rights. So let's see if we can cover this first comment that I have here. This is first issue that, that really comes to mind here of how to commit to settling disputes in the church. That seems to be what's covered here from verses 1 to 8. So Paul poses eight questions in these eight verses, and he does this by peppering the Corinthians with all of these questions and hoping to help them clearly see that they're in contempt of God's court. So Paul's going to argue that the believers should keep their civil conflicts out of the courts. It's not if, but when there's conflict, it should be settled within the confines of the local church. Here's what he says, verse 1 of chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So the Greek verb there, dare, of tomao, is from Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, in which we see that they would not dare ask Jesus another question. So this is a, a serious verb to place stress on this word. It's, it, this is a question with an edge, if you will. It's as, as though Paul is saying, how dare you take your legal grievances against each other before unrighteous people? How could you do this? What are you thinking? Now, this is what unbelievers do, and yet you are the children of God who are supposed to care and share God's vision for this world. So you can almost ask Paul, why, why are you being so intense here? Well, first of all, the Corinthians are giving God and his church a black eye. You see, in Paul's day, legal hearings constituted a large part of the entertainment business in ancient Greek cities. So the courtroom was this public square or a marketplace, like what we might find with Judge Judy today, right? People tuning in and being entertained by the drama on this particular show. That's what they would do then. You see, in Athens, and Corinth was undoubtedly similar to this, a legal dispute was brought before a court known as the Forty. 40 individuals selected by lot to have full powers to decide cases in the amount that didn't exceed 10 drachmas, and that would be about 10 days worth of wages. So if it didn't exceed that, 40 individuals would hear the case. Now, the 40 then picked a public arbitrator, and they had to be a citizen who was in his 60th, his or her 60th year to hear the case. If it still wasn't settled, it went to a jury court, which consisted of 201 citizens. Now, that's if the case involved less than a certain amount of money, maybe like $1,000 today. So then they would go up to the next level, 401 citizens, if it went over that monetary amount. So some juries were then as large as six thousand citizens who all had to be 30 years of age or more. So it is, it's plain to see then that as a Greek city, every man was more or less like a lawyer. They, they spent a lot of time deciding or listening to cases. So whenever someone hauled a brother or sister into court there, they weren't just settling a dispute. They're holding the church itself up to public scrutiny and ridicule. So Paul is concerned about the selfish arrogance of God's people. The Christians there in Corinth are publicly airing their dirty laundry 
throughout the whole city because they've taken their eyes off of their identity and who they are in Christ Jesus. They're getting caught up in the moment and the emotion of the moment of disputes over money and and issues of, of material possessions and totally forgetting that these are children of God, that they're looking for his kingdom come, not their kingdom. So the Jewish people, they didn't ordinarily even use the public courts because they had their own system of justice, which was established during the wilderness wanderings some 14 centuries before Christ, when Moses had been advised by his father-in-law Jethro to set up a system by which these disputes could be heard and from which appeals could be made to Moses himself. So the Sanhedrin later served as this kind of supreme court. Well, the Jews actually believed that taking their disputes to public courts somehow was a, even a blasphemy uh, to God and, and against his law. So Paul is upset because the Corinthians have failed to recognize who they are. The decision by these Christians to go to court revealed how little respect they had for the church authority or even their ability to settle their own disputes. So back in chapter 1, Paul identified these people as saints— holy ones of God. From chapter 1, verse 2, he he said that they were enriched in Christ Jesus and were not lacking in any gift in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he said that they had the mind of Christ and that they could think the way Christ thought in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. So they have in their body of believers all the resources necessary to settle disputes according to Matthew chapter 18. And then the Corinthians boasted of their great spiritual gifts. So why then were they not using those spiritual gifts to solve these challenges? So Paul continues his righteous rant with three more questions, all of which are designed to demonstrate how foolish it is for the Corinthians i.e. these Christians, to throw their legal disputes before judges of the world. He makes his case by using future end-time realities to motivate the Corinthians to prime-time living. Here's what he writes, verses 2-3 to of 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So in both the Old and New Testaments, we are told that believers will one day rule and reign under Christ Jesus over all of the earth. From Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 5, 10, 20, verse 4, even 1 Peter 2, 9. So one element of our responsibilities will be judging the world and angels. This judgment will be delegated to us by Jesus Christ, and then we'll serve as his representatives in this judgment. It is still his judgment, but we're representatives that have been given authority by him over these matters. So why? Because after all, we're, we're his ambassadors. That's what we'd expect as his ambassadors of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. In fact, it even gets better in Luke chapter 19, verses 17 to 19. He says that we'll serve over cities. And this really seems to highlight the very same style in which Moses had delegated rulers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens to judge the people in Exodus 18, 21 to 22. And God will even establish 
priests who will help him decide issues. And this is Jesus Christ as he's ruling from Jerusalem, from his throne there. He'll have priests working for him. In fact, we've talked about that when we went through our Revelation study. Is Ezekiel gives us an amazing image of the temple where Jesus Christ will reside from. And all the priests who serve him there. And there will be a body of priests who help decide issues when there is controversy, according to Ezekiel 44, 23 to 24. And if they're unable to make a determination, they then bring those issues to Jesus, who will judge over all of the earth, according to Micah 4, 3 and Matthew 25, 31 to 46. So God has is placed in authority, Jesus Christ, to reign over all of the earth. Jesus has his priests who aid and assist him and act as a supreme court, of, as you will, as you will, of the, with Jesus Christ then serving over all of it. A, a beautiful system of, of how judgment will be handled during the thousand-year millennial reign. So if that's his plan during the millennial reign, it sounds like we're to model this approach now. This life is ultimately preparation for the next, and that means we must live like it. So as God's representatives, we've been given his authority to judge in the present and in the future. Therefore, since we're going to sit in God's supreme court, then surely we ought to be able to to be competent enough to decide the mundane kinds of disputes that occur among the members of our church in our present service to the king. So here in verses 4 to 8, Paul is then going to tell the Corinthians what they should do when they have strife in the church. Not if, but when. We we obviously are still struggling in the flesh. Paul addresses this greatly through Romans 6 to 8 in talking about this battle of the flesh and the battle of the spirit over the flesh. So of course we're going to make mistakes. Of course we're going to act out emotionally and and be foolish from time to time. And we need uh, civility. We need understanding and, and proper judgment and determination through the discernment of the Holy Spirit over these matters. So in verse 4, he writes, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Now, this verse can be interpreted as either a question or a command. Most English versions of this translate verse 6-4 to chapter 6, verse 4 as a question to presume that Paul is speaking of unbelieving judges. However, I think it's better to see this verse as a command. This verse could then read, If you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges, even men of no title in the church. Okay, so that seems to fit his his context here in words. Paul has just finished motivating the Corinthians to take care of their own conflicts. Now he commands them to action. And so here in verses 5 to 6, Paul then uses this ironic taunt, if if you will, to almost berate the Corinthians about their behavior, even warns them up front that it's coming. He says, I say this to your shame. (laughs) It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against his brother, and that before unbelievers. This is, you know, throughout this letter, Paul has not so subtly addressed the addressed this boasting of the Corinthians. Here they talk about how how gifted they are, how knowledgeable they are, and here he's just calling them right out that, that you, you go into public courts over these matters. You don't even have one wise man amongst you who can settle these matters. So so Paul humbles them with this verbal reprimand. Any Christian walking with the Lord is a better option than taking a case before an unbeliever in a secular court. After all, number one, we have the mind of Christ. He commended them for that. We should have it. 
And number two, there's the motivation of love. We're supposed to agape love our brother, and as Christ loved us, so we are to love others. Number three, there should be this absence of revenge. There really shouldn't be a motivation there of revenge or trying to get even or trying to get my get mine, my property. This was done against me. He tells us to if someone takes our, our cloak to give them the tunic as well. I mean, this, this is supposed to be a behavior of understanding that God is the giver of all anyway. Anything that I have in my bank account is by His grace alone. The fact that I breathe is by His grace and mercy. And number four, the desire to even see the guilty restored. That should be a motivating factor. So Christ Jesus told us in Luke 17, 3-4, to take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So Christians have the advantage of adhering to the true law book, which is the only source of truth and justice since it was given to us by God. Now, he then wraps up this first section. He, Paul, uh, wraps up this first section of chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, by showing the Corinthians the right way then to respond. Here's what he says, Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So Paul insists that going to court with a fellow believer is a no-win situation. It's a total defeat on either end of that spectrum. So an even more shocking condition was that some of the Christians there in Corinth were more than the victims of wrong and fraud. They were the perpetrators of these things. So Christ Jesus addressed some of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 26. We read, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will be by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So, as you know, suing often leads to cheating of someone. Say you sue someone, and if he defends himself successfully... Usually, it still costs him thousands of dollars in court costs and lawyer fees. If he loses, it costs him not only the legal fees, but also the judgment. And that doesn't even touch the matter of a reputation. So how much more in these cases would two Christians go up against one another in a secular court? So Paul says the better way to take to, to handle this situation is ultimately to take the loss. He's telling us that it's better to be a victim than a victor for the greater cause of the reputation of the church and ultimately as we as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. A martyr can do more for a cause than a gladiator. So if you care more about your testimony and ultimately how you represent Christ, then you leave the matters to God. Let him address it. Christ addresses this specifically in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So there, this is where the pride and flesh often come into the equation. We puff up our chest, and we try to make a reasonable argument against this particular perspective of we need to defend ourselves. And we, we, think, we see these type of things to ourselves, these excuses we give, saying, first, it's not fair. We want justice, right? And secondly, we say, I worked hard for what has been cheated out of me. And thirdly, we say, if we let him cheat this time without resisting, he'll just do it again and then realizes that I'm a patsy and will try to take advantage of me again. Or a fourth will say that if I let him cheat, then I'm letting him cheat my kids, or I'm letting him cheat someone else if he doesn't get theirs. And on and on we get all of these reasons that come to mind, and, and we go on giving good reasons why Jesus and Paul just aren't very practical on this point, because we live in a more modern culture and, and different equations in the situation. So how many times have we quoted Psalm 20, verse 7? Here's what we read there. Some trusted chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do we really believe that? I mean, without trying to discuss all the ramifications of the law of non-resistance, I think we must at least see that if these passages teach us nothing else, they teach us that as a Christian, my rights are not as important as my testimony. If I look after my testimony the Bible teaches that there are that there's someone greater who's going to look after my rights. So the reality is that God will avenge those who have been victimized. According to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 20, and Deuteronomy 32, 35. In fact, Peter addresses this greatly in 1 Peter 3, 8 to 17. Here's what we read. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer." But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is not a passive mission but that's before us. It's far more difficult to turn the other cheek. As we just read in Matthew 5.39, it's far more difficult to trust the Lord with justice rather than taking matters into our own hands. The world is filled with the spirit of the adversary whose sole mission is to steal, kill, and destroy, according to John 10.10. So it's not if you're going to be wronged, 
It's when and how often. And so this becomes a test of our faith, part of the refiner's fire, who tested to refine our faith. Are we firm in our foundation of who, who God is? Ultimately, is, is Jesus Christ is our Lord? Is he truly the firm foundation that we talked about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Are we building on that foundation? Or are we building on, on sand? So God is either in control or he's not. It doesn't matter what it may appear to be. Often this is a test of our faith. So either he is the owner of a cattle on of, of, of a thousand hills or he's not from Psalm 50 verse 10. If, if he's not, then we're all wasting our time here. If he is, then I don't need to break my neck trying to protect my rights and my property and my reputation. God can and will take care of all of that for me if I truly trust that he is still wholly in control of this universe. God is totally in control and his will cannot be thwarted according to Job 42 verse 2, Isaiah 14 27. You see, Satan is a created being and under the submission to the holy authority of God. He's a liar. Satan is a liar and a deceiver according to John 8 44 and Revelation 12 9, but he's not able to overcome God. In fact, Satan knows that his time is short according to Revelation 12 12. Thus, he knows that he's already going to be defeated and it's only going to take one angel to throw him in the pit, according to Revelation chapter 20. God doesn't have to send a whole battalion of troops. No, he just sends one angel, and he's able to lasso Satan and throw him in the pit. So God saw the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. There's no accidents, according to Ephesians 1.11. And our God is omnipresent, according to Psalm 139. And scriptures tell us that he holds everything together, according to Colossians 1.17, Hebrews 1.3, and Acts 17.28. So we're going to pause there. We've got much more to cover in this study, and I hope you've just been encouraged, maybe convicted a little bit, challenged to say, where are you putting your best energies? We're told in Jude to contend for the faith. In us is often a fighting spirit. Let's channel it correctly. Let's armor up of Ephesians chapter 6. Let's properly channel that energy in defense of the faith for God the Father, for our testimony in Jesus Christ, rather than getting caught up in the things of this world that Satan wants to distract you with, rather than in our faith and our service to Jesus Christ, building his kingdom and not ours. Again, I hope you've been blessed by this study as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to hear previous broadcasts, watch our sermon series. Right now in our sermon series, we're wrapping up the book of Jude. Uh, Then we're going to be moving into Haggai and into Philemon. We've got great studies there on Sunday morning. Again, all verse by verse, expository teaching there at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. And I know you'd be blessed. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. As you're listening to this broadcast or podcast, be reminded that at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley, the Titus II Women's Ministry is holding their annual craft fair 9 to 3 on Saturday. Uh, That will carry through. Uh, They're going to have a number of fundraisers all through the rest of the year, but that craft fair is quite important to their fundraising efforts as they minister to women around the community. Uh, Service to women far and wide, it is truly a blessing to the community. Please come out for that. Learn more at calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends. We'll see you next week.